0: Happy National Crafting Month, everyone! This is Greg, and here are the hot glue and popsicle stick offerings you can listen to in the Popping Colors feed in March 2022. On the flagship Popping Collars podcast, we're picking up the pieces with a conversation about representations of grief in popular culture, I have an Under the Stole interview with David Reynolds, the author of Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, which serves as the inspiration for a new documentary entitled Lincoln's Dilemma, here David weave together the history and mythology of the great emancipator. Betsy and I are bedazzled by movies from 30 years ago this month we discuss the joys and challenges of John Singleton's masterpiece, Boys in the Hood. Finally, Dan Joslyn Simitowski is back to discuss baseball and sacraments on a new episode of The Sacred Six. This month, the glitter will be flying when we discuss confirmation and Joe Carter's most famous home run in World Series history. You're listening to the little DIY pod that always colors outside the line. Thanks for joining us and keep those collars pops. In Colors Universe, my name is Greg Knight, and I like learning more about things I don't know much about. Luckily for me, I've got this here podcast that gives me an excuse to talk to experts and scholars. This month, I got the chance to meet with David Reynolds. David is a distinguished professor at the CUNY Graduate Center and the author and editor of sixteen books, including Walt Whitman's America: A Cultural Biography. Beneath the American Renaissance, The Subversive Imagination in the Age of Emerson and Melville, and most recently, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, a biography that inspired a docu-series entitled Lincoln's Dilemma on Apple TV+. IMDb says that documentary follows Abraham Lincoln's complex journey to end slavery with insights from journalists, educators, and Lincoln scholars, including rare archival materials that offer a more nuanced look at the famed president. I will tell you that this documentary and David's book reveal the political, ambitious, and conflicted man behind the myth. So what's left to learn about one of the most analyzed American political figures of all time? Find out as I keep things under the stole with David Reynolds. But before we chat, here's the trailer for Lincoln's Dilemma. What we're seeing today is dramatic evidence of what happens when you fail to talk honestly about your history. And it harkens to the mid 19th century during the Civil War. So Lincoln becomes important to reflect on the issues of division that we're seeing today. Abraham Lincoln has outwitted just about as many historians as politicians of his own day. Unless you understand what is going on around what he is saying, you can never really understand Abraham Lincoln. Did not start his presidency to be the great emancipator. It's not a phrase Lincoln asked to be applied to himself, and we can do better. What's up? What's up? Frederick Douglass is every bit the equal of the president of the United States.
1: He's constantly in Lincoln's ear, pushing him on black humanity.
0: As the voices that have access to Lincoln change, Lincoln himself changes in response.
1: number one agenda is unification. It is not the abolition of slavery. Lincoln was forced to reckon with slavery due to black people themselves.
0: He came to think that out of this would come something truly monumental. Lincoln is talking about doing something pretty radical here. Something really important inside of him was opening up.
1: He was trying to navigate the currents of really irreconcilable ideas.
0: get you started on a question that i always ask i'm always curious whenever we have guests on the show of um how did you find yourself doing what you're doing as far as you know writing books about history writing books about figures what was it that happened in your life that made you think well this is what i want to do this is what i want to pursue
1: i got interested in history uh particularly american history history because um when I was younger, a child, I just enjoyed reading. I wasn't particularly interested in history, but when I went to college at Amherst College, um, I studied American Studies, and then I got my graduate degree in American Studies. And at first, I was mainly interest, interested interested in the authors of the 19th century: uh, Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. The whole culture, and then um, so many of them, including Walt Whitman, about whom I wrote a book. Uh, focused on Lincoln. And I slowly realized that I should write a book on Lincoln because uh, so much had been left unsaid about him. In spite of the 16,000 books, uh, so so much of his contemporary culture had been left out. And he had real interchanges with that culture and was influenced by it. So that's basically how it happened.
0: That's fascinating that you get to Lincoln by way of folks like Whitman... Emerson Thoreau, like because that that, so that's a very sort of particular spiritual, you know, uh renaissance that's happening in America around those guys' writings. And and here comes Lincoln as sort of like a response to a lot of what they're
1: writing in Walden and Yeah, absolutely. And uh I really see him as very much part of his era. Emerson said about Lincoln that there's no other great hero. He wrote a um Lecture on uh, heroism, and no no great heroic statesman uh, in history who spans the entire realm realm of culture, from the very highest Lincoln, uh, even though he had less than one year of primary education, could recite Shakespeare by the page and many other poets by the page just from heart. But at the same time, he enjoyed body humor, mm-hmm. sentimental songs, popular songs. So he really spanned the entire realm of culture. And um, a lot of Lincoln biographers, well, virtually all of them really don't know too much about that culture that he grew up in. So I emphasized that, hey, he was deeply involved in, in everything going on there. And this really fed into his expansiveness and his compassion. And it helped him when he bounced off of this culture, which was often rowdy and turbulent, Mm -hmm. It helped him, in a sense, discipline himself, which is one reason why he loved poetry so much, because it channels meaning and feeling and emotion. And that's why the greatest speeches we have, the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural, are really like prose poems. They're they're very short, they're pithy, and they concentrate so much of American, uh, meaning of America, just in very concise and, and rather poetic language. That's
0: actually part of what I wanted to talk to you about was the, the your book and the way that it sort of frames Lincoln moving forward because um, so much of the documentary is about sort of this kind of dichotomy between history and mythology. And we've kind of leaned on the myth of Lincoln and ignored a little bit of the history of Lincoln, which you've talked about. And it makes me wonder what – I would start by asking this, what do you wish people knew about Lincoln, the historical figure that kind of gets swallowed up by the mythological emancipator?
1: Well, the fact that that he is human, but not only that, I mean, he's not a saint. The fact that he was assassinated uh, lent to a lot of hagiography, even to this very day and so forth. And. He was such a human being struggling to do what he believed was right. But also, as the film points out, he was a politician as well. And Frederick Douglass and other African-American reformers in particular uh, were like his conscience, always encouraging him to be more militantly and overtly anti-slavery. But as, as uh, my book and the documentary points out, he was kind of in a bind because uh, he hated uh, slavery as much as um, Frederick Douglass. Right. And he believed in human equality, equality. but he was a, pol- a politician, unlike Douglass. It's like comparing Martin Luther King to a politician. Or you know, uh, reformers and orators have a certain latitude of, of public expression mm-hmm. that politicians frankly don't and he was running for office in frankly a very unfortunately racist country even in the north a lot of them were anti-slavery but a lot of them had r- racial views and in order to get elected he had to be Blonden. uh blondin was a tightrope walker who went back and forth across niagara falls mm-hmm. carrying a man on his back and pushing a wheelbarrow and everything he said you know i'm, I'm charles blondin um i uh and he said early in the war if i make this a war for emancipation right away, right now, what's gonna happen is that we're gonna lose the border states. The border states had enslaved people, Kentucky and uh, Tennessee and so forth. And yet they were still with the North, with the Union. And he said, you know, if I lose Kentucky, we're, we're just gonna lose the war and I might as well hand over uh, Washington to the Confederacy right now. So he had to be very cautious before the war and during the war. And finally he reached a point where he was able to um, issue the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, which initially was kind of a war measure. But then, as the film shows, a kind of juggernaut uh, of emancipation led to his full, full-throated full public um, uh, support for, for emancipation.
0: You know, that, that idea of the border states, and especially of the West, sort of feels like it's a key part of the Lincoln presidency, you know, you know, Lincoln's not a northeastern Republican here. You know, he's coming from the frontier a little bit, right? That's got to sort of play into how he understands DC politics at this time.
1: Yeah. And, um, his Western persona wasn't really a persona was a reality. Uh, because he had like a Midwestern accent and he was kind of folksy and he was beloved as Abe, Abe, the Illinois rail splitter and that kind of thing. So there was this folksy charm Mm at the same, Mm -hmm. same time in in a sense that hurt him with certain Easterners um, and West pointers, such as McClellan, his first general who, who never took to him. Uh, McClellan just knew a few languages. He was uh, very high in his class at West Point and he was all about appearance. He was sort of a handsome, you know, gold button general and everything. And he looked down, he very much looked down on, on, on Lincoln and called him a baboon and a gorilla. Gorilla. So the uh, kind of Western uh, of folksy, folksiness of Lincoln did, a, did appeal to a lot of voters. But then it kind of turned off um, certain dignitaries and so forth. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, even his cabinet members, uh, Salmon Chase, um, thought that he was. In fact, when Lincoln uh, uh, heard someone say, "How how can you take on Salmon Chase? He thinks you're greatly uh, he's greatly superior to me," and and Lincoln's res- response was, "Hey, if you can find people that are greatly super- superior to me, please bring bring them up, bring them on. I I, I want them." And, and he uh, uh, managed to work with uh, Salmon Chase and the uh, various rivals because they, they were excellent, qualified people in general, except for Simon Cameron. But that was a political appointment and he got rid of Cameron. But, yeah.
0: I See, I love this because the detail of it and the specificity of it is really what is attractive about what I've been able to see of your book so far, but also what uh, comes out of the documentary is this it's complex. Like it's not, there's not a simple narrative that goes into the election of this president, the war that happens during this president's first um, administration, and then what comes after. And, and I love the way that you said that his assassination leads to his hagiography because- it feels like of every president, maybe Washington and Lincoln are the most sort of mythologized of, you know, the ones that have come before. And it makes me think that people want the People don't want the history because it's too complex. People want the mythology. And I just wonder, like, do you have a sense of why? What's appealing about that? Why do people want the Lincoln the myth and not Lincoln the man?
1: yeah, and I think in Lincoln's case, Walt Whitman said that um, con- nations are more influenced by what Whitman called heroic eminent death, deaths, uh, the deaths of uh, heroic people, just as much as constitutions and laws. And like the death of Martin Luther King and the death of of, of uh, Bobby Kennedy and the death, uh, uh, they automatically kind of seep into the national consciousness in a way that is really, really profound. Um, Washington, I think, as the father of the country, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, is mythologized both for the American Revolution in which he was a general and then as the first president and so forth. So he's kind of easy to mythologize. And Lincoln, because he did lead the war through its bloodiest, um, worst crisis in which nearly 800,000 Americans not only died like in a pandemic, but killed each other. They they killed each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that he actually brought the nation through that. And then five days later was assassinated by a white supremacist actor who, by the way, felt infinitely superior. Uh, he he, John Wilkes Booth was like the sexiest guy in America. He was like the ha- handsomest actor. It was like Brad Pitt or whatever, but uh, he just hated, hated Lincoln. And uh, killed him and 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 really thought that Lincoln was both uh, vulgar and inferior, but also uh, would create a horrible racial revolution in in the country. Booth had been uh, in a slave uh, holding a family in Maryland. and so uh, he he just and uh, when when he heard uh, uh, Lincoln's final speech in which Lincoln was the first president to advocate the vote for African Americans, at least those who had served in in the military and those who were quote uh, educated. Booth was in the audience. He just says, "I'm I'm now I'm now going to really put this guy through. I'm I'm, I'm going to kill him because that means in I don't like to use that word in citizenship." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, "Yeah." And and a couple of days later, he he killed him. The
0: the actual stories of Lincoln, you know, the train ride to D.C. Uh, for his first inauguration, the um the um, hatching of the uh, assassination plans uh, in the Ford theater, all of that. it's just it reads like theater. I mean, it, it's just it, it's it's amazing. It's like um Caesar or something. it's it's well, just
1: so well, you know some some people ask me, why don't you write historical fiction fiction novels? Right. And actually, you know, history itself, to me is just even more dramatic and and, and in some ways even more unbelievable mm-hmm. <laughs> than than fiction, really. It's just just incredible. The There's whole, a shot. That... Uh, uh, oh the whole assassination effort involved more. And yeah, Lincoln caught wind of it and he had to put on his felt cap and and pull up his cape and and sneak down as somebody else nice. <laughs> down to to assume office in, in the White House. You know, just incredible.
0: And this isn't even getting into his own personal tragedies with his, the death of his son, the complications of his relationship with his wife. I mean, all of these things are just, uh, it's, it's got to feel like he's getting, he's, he's, he's sort of fighting wars on multiple fronts, including in his own white house.
1: Exactly. He was, uh, going through so much personal turmoil, um, his wife, he loved his wife. She loved him, but she was also tempestuous. She was extremely jealous, um, possibly did some double dealing for money because she wanted to decorate the White House so lavish, lavishly. And uh, he had arguments with her about that, although there was a basic loyalty. His son, um, Willie, uh, was was really someone who was, I think, a budding Abraham Lincoln, just, just a good a good, uh, uh, intelligent, uh, uh, virtuous young 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 boy, and it was very very sad when he dies uh, in the White House at, at age eleven of of typhoid, and and Lincoln just cries his head off. Mary is uh, the wife, is bedridden for for quite a time, and she only wears black for a whole year. And uh, mm-hmm. at the same time that he's going through a lot of uh, witnessing a lot of battles. It was around this, just around the same time, that uh, uh, battles like Fredericksburg and 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 when that happened, Lincoln uh, that was a defeat for the the North. Yeah, very, very bloody, terrible defeat. And Lincoln said, "You know, I I think I'm in a worse place than hell right now. (laughs) I think I'm in a worse place than hell." And yet, did he get depressed? Yes, he did get depressed. Did he get so depressed that it incapacitated him? the way perhaps some people, whatever, fall into catatonia. or, or No, he, he never really did. He got very, very sad, very depressed, but it didn't totally incapacitate him, which, which was really, really good. And he was able to recover himself enough to kind of guide the nation through. Yeah.
0: Can it be overstated the importance that uh, the burgeoning art of photography plays and the, in how we understand sort of Lincoln and the civil war and all of these things. It's, it strikes me that being able to see actual real images of the man with the circles under his eyes and the weight of the war uh, in person, not through portrait, but in, f- in photograph and the devastation of battles and the bodies strewn across fields and stuff, that's got to affect how Americans understand not just him, but also what's happening to the country.
1: Yeah, I mean, photography really comes along in in 1839, uh, quite a a long time before the uh, Civil War. But then in the decade just before the Civil War, it begins to kind of explode, um, not in the sense that we have, but Uh, There are photographic studios where you go and look at photographs on the wall. And then during the uh, Civil War, just about that time, he begins to, um, again, it's very primitive by our standards, but the portraits of Lincoln were so, so important. The one taken around the time of his Cooper Union speech uh, in uh, uh, 1860, he says, helped get him elected. Matthew Brady took him in, and he looks very dignified quite presidential very calm and then after the assassination threat there's a very calm uh in Baltimore he reaches Washington and and then uh, he looks there's a very calm uh picture of him and and very um dignified picture of him with his hat uh there and uh taken by an associate of Brady and then in 1863 there's the the full frontal uh, uh Brady portrait of him, which is incredibly striking. And these photographs get distributed, not the way we would by uh, printing them in magazines, but in what were called carte de, de visite of these kind of photographic reproductions that were kind of distributed by the hundreds of thousands. So they got around, and then the pictures of the Civil War dead. In many cases, uh, Brady or somebody else would, would arrange the corpses uh, for graphic um, effect. um, and and lay them out. But actually many uh, battlefields were were like that. You could barely step on on a battlefield without stepping on on a corpse like after Gettysburg. The corpses were like everywhere. So they weren't really unrealistic. And and to see those uh, images and they were put up in studios, they were distributed. So uh, yeah, for the first time, warfare becomes really uh, visual, not only in lithographs or engravings, but in photographs.
0: You know, I was talking to my co-hosts yesterday, we were recording an episode of the podcast and I was talking about the interview that we had coming up and the conversation turned to the Lincoln Memorial itself, you know, just kind of how it's staged. And I was thinking about the opening of this documentary and Lincoln looking out at the Capitol riot, right? Which is, it's sort of juxtaposed, like what's happening at the Capitol versus what's happening back at the Lincoln Memorial. And I remember thinking, you know, 5,000 years from now, when America's in ruins or whatever, and some civilization finds what's left behind, they're going to think that this man was a god. They're going to think that this was a god that we worshiped because of this memorial, right? I mean, it, it kind of has that feel to it. Like, there's something about the way that we've narrativized him that we've we've almost deified. It's not even like hagiography. It's almost like we've made him into a god, the way that he's right. like
1: groaned and stuff. And, you know, he, he might have appreciated the memorial, but he didn't like to be worshipped when he walked into Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy that had fallen to the northern troops. He was surrounded by African-Americans who are now free. And he told them, you're free as the air. But one, one African-American got down on his knees and, and he said, you know, don't get down on your knees to me. Get down on your, your knees to your maker. Get down on your knees to your maker. You you don't get down on your knees to me. He said, I appreciate your you know, your your appreciation. He's a very, very humble man. And he was always kind of making uh, a fun of himself And he was humbled before God because the most uh, honest religious expression that we have from him is he didn't write it for anybody, just for himself. He was scribbling about God. And he was basically, it's called Meditation on Divine Will. And he's saying, you know, basically, this war is in God's hands. Hmm. I I can do what I think is right. I don't know how the war is going to end up. And I'll try my hardest. And I'll try to strain toward justice, but it's it's, it's in your hands, God. It's, it, it's not as in, in, in my hands. And that's why in his very last great speech, the second inaugural, he has so many quotations from the Bible, references to God and the justice of God. And in that speech, is, it's directed against the sin of slave, uh, enslaving people, the sin, uh, the sin of slavery. But uh, And and he really uh, wants to state that he believes that God's justice is against slavery. At the same time that he says, malice toward none and charity for all. Hmm. And he said, if I could reduce all religion to the golden rule, rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, that would be just the greatest religion. And even though he never actually joined a church, he attended church with his wife, Mary. And he knew the Bible very, very well, uh, and quoted from. And he put under God on U.S. coins. He nationalized Thanksgiving as a religious holiday, and under him, Christmas uh, became what it what it is today. Uh, you know, a national previously been dominated by the South. So yeah,
0: you know, it's it's funny. Your book comes out during a time another narrative that is sort of exists at this time is this idea that the country is as divided as it's ever been right which as a historian you've got to appreciate well wait a second <laughs> like mm-hmm. time out on time out on this narrative of like division <laughs> right um but uh but your book comes out at its at a time in history where at least in polls Americans sort of identify themselves as being divided and yet at the same time it strikes me that whatever sort of political, um, belief people have Lincoln sort of seems to be the character that they appeal to. So it's like, you know, well, let's quote Lincoln. Lincoln is on our side. And then like the other side will also quote Lincoln and say that Lincoln, you know, represents their values as well. You know, 200 years after Lincoln, as, as, an historian, Do you think it's possible for the average American to think of him as a human being?
1: If you read, for example, my book in which, uh, you know, I trace him as a human being with all his foibles, there were moments when he felt like committing suicide early on because of certain love relationships that, uh, you know, one person died and so forth. And he did have periods of depression and so forth. And his storytelling fests on the Lost circuit and uh, his love of popular music and, and, and everything. So, I mean, I think not only that, but during the Civil War, moments when he turned ghastly white and really looked almost like a ghost after, you know, 20,000 people were uh, collectively were killed in a certain battle. And and uh, he just and he recites Shakespeare at that point. Uh, You know, tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, you know, uh, uh, from uh, uh, Macbeth. And on the last day of the war, when Lee surrenders to Grant, and he wants to read poetry about death because he's thinking about all the people who have died under his watch, about 800,000 Americans. And everybody else is saying, like, mission accomplished, and oh, this is great. Mm -hmm. And he was sitting there reading aloud from Shakespeare, from Longfellow. These are poems about death. They were very meaningful to him, and he wasn't just jumping up and down. And I think that if we view him in this way, there's a humanity to him mm. that everybody, whether you're Republican, Democrat, doesn't really matter, can associate with. Another thing is that he did associate with London, the tightrope walker. So there, there was kind of a conservative side to him and a kind of a radical side to him. And people retrospectively, in a sense, can kind of pick and choose (laughs) which side they would like to identify with. Right. He was really a a centrist in many, many ways. And he was the first to say, you know, I'm blonde and I'm on on the tightrope here.
0: (laughs) In the grand scheme of things, this is a very short amount of time uh, in American history, but there's no shortage of stories that can come out of This time, do you get a sense that we're going to be, you know, just thinking uh, historically, do you think we're still going to be talking about this 100 years from now, 200 years from now, that Lincoln's still going to be that figure that kind of pulls us back to that time and in our country's history where we were at war with each other?
1: I really do. And people who have read my book say that almost every page has something new about him, but I think that another book could be written where almost every page has something new. Um, He is such a complex and fascinating figure and such uh, an icon. And if you kind of get rid of the mere hagiography Mm. and look closer and closer, there's so much more to be said, for example, about his relationships with a lot of different people, uh, both during the war and before the war. And I begin to probe them, but just so much more to be said and uh he does stand the test of time, and I think a hundred years from now if we're still around uh we'll still be talking about him
0: yeah, I'll get you out of here on this. I always uh finish up all of these uh conversations by asking folks um we are a pop culture and religion podcast. And so I, I'm always curious, uh, is there anything that you're watching or reading or listening to that you would recommend to other people? Something that you would say, Oh my gosh, right now I'm, I'm, I'm watching this thing and, and everyone should check it out. What's a, what's a, uh, what's an offering that you would say uh, that you would recommend to folks?
1: I just watched, uh, I, well, um, I forgot the name of it. Something about what I learned from the octopus or something on Netflix. Which oh, my octopus a, a, teacher. Yeah. My octopus teacher. I thought that was just just a be- beautiful word and uh, not something I would naturally be attracted to. And also um, a, a, a very tender and evocative story called My Best Friend uh, Anne Frank. I've been watching that recently, which is a Danish film, I think on Netflix still. And it has subtitles. but uh, and again, you you think the Anne Frank story? Okay, we've heard too much about that, but actually, it's it's really well done, and it does depict the concentration camps, but in let's say a more hopeful way. Because I mean, it's not just a picture of body of, of dead bodies or anything like that. It, it it's more about resilience and so forth, and friendship and love and so forth. So you know, uh, those two are really really interesting to me. Nice. David
0: Reynolds, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, Greg. It was just great talking
1: with you.